This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles this morning, turn if you would to Romans chapter 8. Um, we're going to continue our series entitled Affliction, uh, where we've been talking about suffering and the sovereignty of God. Oftentimes people believe that if they follow Jesus, all of their problems will go away. Or if they follow Jesus or do things the right way, then troubles uh, will never come into their life. But the Bible tells us that that couldn't be farther from the truth, uh, that we will experience difficulty in life. We will experience trials and temptations and uh, difficulties through life. And that's just part of what life is about. But when we walk through these situations with Jesus, everything takes on a different meaning. Everything has a different purpose. uh, And we have the grace and strength that we need day by day uh, to complete the work that God has called us to do. If you missed any of the messages so far, you can always get caught up on our website at huikala.org or subscribe to our podcast uh, wherever you get podcasts from or you can download our app to your phone or your tablet. uh, Get caught up that way. Uh, This is message number eight in our series as we're taking a look at suffering and the sovereignty of God. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse number 22, uh, this morning. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. We know that this life is hard and all of creation together groans and suffers together. Verse 23, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. Paul says, hey, this is just not the unsaved people, but we as Christians who have the Holy Spirit inside of us still go through difficult times. Uh, We still wake up in the morning and groan within ourselves uh, that we have to continue in this life that we're in. And it says we're waiting for the redemption of our body the day that we get to go to heaven and see Jesus. Verse 24, for we are saved by hope, But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then we do with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. If you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, uh, that you, uh, it helps with your difficult times that you go through. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called, and whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, then he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Right in the middle of that passage is an often quoted verse. You might have even uh, saw it as you came across it that we have become uh, probably, I would say, too familiar with. You say, can you be too familiar with the Bible? You can to the point that we lose the meaning of what the Bible really says. Uh, Verse number 28 in this passage is often quoted when people go through difficult times, uh, and it's often paraphrased or even chopped off altogether, uh, sometimes even used out of context to say what it really doesn't say. All things work together for good. Well, I lost my job this week. Well, the Bible says all things work together for good, so there's another job around the corner waiting for you. Well, we got bad news from the doctor today. Well, all things work together for good, so good news is coming your way. Uh, man, uh, my, my marriage is, is crumbling and falling apart. Well, the Bible says all things work together for good, so your marriage is going to be just fine. And we take this promise from God, we chop it, we remove the meat from it, and then we hang on to the part that we want to, to make the Bible say what we want it to say. And that's very, very, very incredibly dangerous when we take God's word and make it say what we want it to say. This would be a trick that I would even go so far as to call satanic. 
Uh, when Jesus was tempted uh, in the wilderness by Satan himself, Satan quoted scripture to him, misappropriated it, misapplied it to Jesus in an effort to tempt Jesus. We find even uh, the devil in the, gar in the Garden of Eden tempted Eve, and she says, we're not supposed to, to eat from this tree. And he said, did God really say that? Maybe you misunderstood what God said. And so the devil is a, a master of twisting the word of God, casting doubt on the word of God, and causing you to lose your confidence in the word of God. So this morning, before we jump into pulling the message apart, we're gonna talk about uh, appropriate Bible interpretation and some tips that we can use as we read the Bible to make sure we know what the Bible's saying. Let me go so far as to say this, you don't need a pastor to tell you what the Bible says. The Bible is clear for anyone to understand. The Bible has been one of the most written, most studied uh, books, most read books in all of human history. There's tons of resources out there to help you to study the Bible. And my heart for you as your pastor would that you would be a Bible scholar yourself, that you would dig into the word on your own, you would study the word, that when you come across something that you don't know, you would look it up, you would study it further, you would look at other cross-references and see what the Bible says to become a Bible scholar yourself because you need to know the Bible. I think all of us would say, we believe that the Bible is, is our sole authority for all matters of faith and practice. We believe that the Bible is the guidebook for life. We believe that the Bible has the answers for what we face in life. But many of us don't know the Bible and we're okay with ignorance because we think, I'll show up to church once a week and the pastor will tell me what I need to know. That is a terrible way to go through the Christian life. So I'm gonna give you some tools and resources this morning that will help you to become a better Bible scholar. I also wanna pause here for just a second and say if you are a husband or a father, it is your God-given obligation and responsibility to be the Bible theologian for your home. That means your kids have questions, they should be able to ask dad. Uh, your wife has questions, she should be able to ask dad. You need uh, some direction on how you should make decisions for your family. You should know because you are an expert on the Bible. You say, well, I'm not there yet. Then let's grow together. Now, if you want resources and tools that we can do uh, to help you to become a Bible scholar yourself, our discipleship program, I think, is one of the best ways in the world to get people up to speed in a short period of time on knowing what the Bible says and what God expects of you. But everyone should be a student of the Bible. How do cults get started? Because people don't know the Bible. How do people get sucked into false religion? Because they don't know the Bible. How do churches propagate ungodly practices? Because people don't know the Bible. And if you just took a look at what the Bible says, we would do away with much of the things that are plaguing Christianity today. And we would do away with much of the problems that we see from the unsaved people looking at the church as well. And so before we jump in this morning, I want to give you some, some tools I think will help you, uh, some helpful principles for Bible hermeneutics. You say, what's hermeneutics? I'm glad you asked. It's just a fancy word for interpretation. The study of the interpretation of the Bible would be hermeneutics. And so here's some good ways to help us to interpret the Bible. How do we make sure that we don't get caught up in misapplying Romans 8.28? How do we make sure that we uh, get the most out of it? First of all, when studying the Bible, context is key. Now, we're really just going to be talking about verses uh, 28 and 29 this morning as we take a look at this text and we talk about what it means and what it doesn't mean. We're really just going to be taking a look at two verses but if you notice, I read about four verses before it, about four verses after that, because context is always really important. Uh, we need to ask ourselves the questions, what is the purpose of this writing? Who was Paul writing to in the book of Romans? Well, he was writing to the church at Rome. What was Paul's relationship with the church at Rome? Some people might not know that. Interesting fact, Paul had never been to the church at Rome yet. And so in the beginning of Romans chapter one, he writes to them and says, hey, I'm really excited about coming to see you guys. I've heard a lot of good stuff about you. But before I come, I wanna teach you some things that I think will be really helpful to you. And so Paul goes on and gives one of the greatest discourses in all of the Bible on the doctrine of who Jesus Christ is and what his death does for us. And so Romans 8.28 is in the middle of this massive doctrinal masterpiece uh, that Paul has written. What's the purpose of it? We need to ask ourselves, to whom was it written? Uh, why was Paul writing to the church at Rome? We've been studying on uh, Sunday nights the book of Galatians, and we talked about why Paul wrote the book of Galatians. It was to combat false teaching that was taking place in some of the churches there. Next, for what purpose was it written? Uh, for what, cause, what comes immediately before and immediately after this? Again, I need to know 
who this is written to, what the context of it is, why this was written in the first place, and what are the parts before it and after it that bring clarity to these verses. Next, before claiming promises from the Bible, we must ask, is this promise for me? Especially as you read the Old Testament, God had written some promises that were given to the children of Israel specifically. Those are not promises that you and I can claim outright by nature. However, there are often principles that we can gather from those promises. There's often teachings from those promises that God gives that we can glean and we can apply those things to our life. Uh, so I've heard people foolishly say before, well, you don't really need to read the Old Testament. It's just history. Uh, all of the Bible is important. The Bible tells us that all scripture is given by inspiration. That means breathed out by God's own breath and is profitable to us. And so every bit of scripture from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, is helpful for you. You just need to understand the context of it. So as we look at scripture, we need to understand that context is key. Next, we always use scripture to interpret scripture. There are helpful commentaries, but commentaries are written by men uh, who sometimes had flawed views of what the Bible is like. There are even some commentators who have good things to say about the Bible, but they would also say things like, we can't really trust the Bible. The Bible is not inerrant. Uh, the Bible has flaws. Uh, the Bible is incomplete in areas. We don't really know what this is supposed to say. Uh, and they cast aspersion on the ability for us to be able to trust the Bible. So the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Uh, if you have a good Bible, a study Bible, uh, you'll often find cross-references. Here's another place where we talk about this theme in Scripture. And I would highly recommend every single person own a study Bible. Now, study Bibles are a little bit thicker, a little bit larger than a typical Bible. You can't shove them uh, necessarily in your front shirt, front uh, pant pocket or anything like that, but it's a helpful tool to have as you study the Bible. Uh, one of my favorite uh, Bibles that we have uh, in our bookstore rack here is the Life Application Study Bible. Uh, the first part of the chapter tells you when it was written, who it was written to, who the author was, or the purpose for the writing, it gives you an outline of the, the passage, it even tells you what part of the world it was written in, gives you maps and things like that, uh, some verses to look out for and things along those lines. But the thing I love about the Life Application Study Bible is it's basically split in half. And again, uh, it's a commentary in, in the bottom half of it. So you have to read it with a little bit of discernment, I would encourage you. But it tells you on the top half, first of all, what the Bible says. And on the bottom, it tells you how you apply this to your life. And one of the best gifts that you could give to another person is a, a study Bible to help them to glean more from the Word of God. But scripture with scripture is the best way to do it uh, with cross-references and find out what are, where are other places that the Bible talks about this theme as well. Next, read what the Bible says, not what you think it means. Again, uh, we oftentimes read the Bible with our own biases and what we think it's trying to say as opposed to just reading what the Bible says. Now, uh, to test your ability to read into the Bible, I'm gonna ask a very easy question. When Jesus was born, how many wise men came to visit him? Answer. Some people say three, some people say four, some people say we're not really sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. It tells that there were, there were three gifts given, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and that wise men came to worship him, but we don't know how many came to worship him. It could have been one guy that brought a, little, a lot of gifts and got a lot of credit for, for that. Uh, it could have been 30 or 300 guys that came to worship him, and we only uh, call it three because we read into the Bible what we have been taught or what we think or th something along those lines. And we have to be careful that we just let the Bible itself speak. Again, when false religion rears its head, it will use portions of the Bible and parts of the Bible to, to be able to make its, its case, but it leaves out all the context. Uh, for example, uh, if you've never read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it's a fascinating read. Uh, it, it's basically a, a full-size volume book of false doctrine. And as you read through it, there are many Bible verses to support the false doctrine. Uh, for example, the, it says that uh, we should that Mary is the co-redemptrix of mankind. That Mary came to redeem mankind uh, by giving birth to Jesus Christ, and she is held on the same plane as Jesus Christ for our redemption. We would say not true at all. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ alone is our redeemer. But he uses a Bible verse where the angel comes to Mary and says, "Mary, thou art highly favored among men," and they use that part of the Bible to say that she is the redeemer of mankind. And you look at that and you say, well, let's take a look at the rest of the context. What else does the angel say? It doesn't say that Mary will redeem us, but that she'll give birth to the Messiah who will redeem us. 
And so again, if we just look at a portion of scripture without studying the context and the deeper meaning behind that, we can get sucked into false religion or we can allow someone to tell us something about the Bible that's not true. That's why it's really important that we become, again, experts at biblical, here's another good Bible study word for you, exegesis. The word exegesis is the critical explanation of interpretation of text, especially of scripture. This word exegesis literally means drawing meaning out of. When we take a look at, at a Bible text, like we do this morning, Romans 8, 28 and 29, we're going to draw truth out of that this morning. We're getting there in just a minute. This is just the introduction. Uh, but we're gonna draw truth out of that. We're not gonna read into it what we think it should say. We're not going to, uh, to have our own preconceived notions of what the Bible should say. We're gonna look at it and we're gonna look at the context. We're gonna look at who it was written to, what it means. We're gonna take a look at other passages of scripture. Now we're gonna take a look at where this theme is, is taught in other parts of the Bible as well. We're gonna put all that together and we're gonna draw truth out of. That's called biblical exegesis. And I wanna encourage you to become a expert on biblical exegesis. We have some books in our bookstore uh, that will help you as you study the Bible and biblical exegesis and things like that. It's, it's pulling truth out of it. And the more that you begin to dig and you see the word choices that were used as the biblical writers use certain words to talk about certain themes, it really becomes to, uh, to become alive to us. What we don't want to do and what often people are, uh, even pastors are guilty of doing is what we call eisegesis. Eisegesis is the process of interpreting the text in such a way as to introduce one's own presuppositions, agendas, or biases. This is where we read into something that's not really there because we want it to make it say what we want it to say. And when we have an eisegesis mentality looking at the Bible, we're reading everything into it the way that we want it to be seen. For example, and I've heard all these examples before, uh, Noah and the ark. What is the truth of that particular story of Noah and the ark? Uh, you have the judgment of mankind that was coming. You had a way of salvation that God had made. You had a man who believed God even when he could not see it. And you had the salvation that was brought by God and God alone. That's the, the major truth of the story of Noah. And we pull those out of the text by looking at it, again, looking at other parts of Scripture as well. Now, I have heard an eisegesis view of Noah and the ark as well. Let me tell you this, it, it was very troubling to hear. That the ark is actually a picture of the church. And the church provides a place to come in difficult times and difficult weather and storms of life. And at the helm of the ark is the pastor, and the pastor is a picture of Noah. And all those who come into the ark will be saved, meaning the church, and again, there's no salvation found in the church at all. And the animals, get this, are actually a representation of our children. Who will want to, I, I can agree with my children are animals, okay? Uh, I'm good with that part. But the, the rest of it, you look at that and you go, that's not what it means at all. That, that whole thing breaks down the second that you start to look at what does the Bible say. That's a classic example of someone reading into the Bible something that's not even there. And it might make for a good story and it might be a good challenge, but it's not a biblical interpretation of the Bible and we need to shun uh, eisegesis. Now, there is a type of exegesis that some people feels like maybe be a little bit on the border of that. It's referred to, if, you want, if you're taking notes this morning, I recommend that you look this up. It's called typology. It's where we look at pictures of Jesus Christ in other parts of the Bible. And typology is an incredible way to study the Bible. Uh, again, if you just want to go home and do a Google search and type in Old Testament types of Christ, it's going to be pictures of Jesus that we find in the Old Testament. How about this? Here's a typology example for you here. The ark was a picture, I'm sorry, the flood was a picture of God's coming judgment upon mankind for their sin. And the ark was provided as a place of salvation, a place where people could be saved from the coming judgment. Therefore, the ark is a type of Jesus Christ. All those who came into the ark were saved from the coming judgment and damnation and condemnation that were coming upon the earth. And all those that were outside of the ark were condemned to God's wrath and destruction. That is a biblical type of Christ. And so, so much rich imagery that we find in the Bible. And when we find out that stories in the Old Testament aren't just stories, they're actually pictures of Jesus. Because here's, um, let me help you with this. The Bible is the story of Jesus cover to cover, 
All of it, every bit of it. The, the, the story of the, the hero of the Bible is always Jesus. And so when we read, again, be an exegetical view of the Bible, Jesus is always the hero. Jesus is always the savior. Jesus is always the deliverer every single time. Another example, uh, David and Goliath. Again, we have a young man who stands up against an unbeatable foe, stands up in great faith and in the name of God, sent by God to destroy this giant who stood in the way and to deliver his people into victory. That's the, that's the exegetical view of the story of David and Goliath. A lot of truths we can pull out of that. I've heard so much bad preaching on David and Goliath in my life. It, it's just terrible. When David went to the brook and for his slingshot, he took five smooth stones, the Bible says, and he put them in his pouch. Now, he only used one of them. What were the other four for? Anybody know? No, we don't, because the Bible doesn't tell us, and it doesn't matter. Well, Goliath had four other brothers, and after that, David was going for all four of them. That makes an awesome story, but it's not in the Bible anywhere. Well, those, those five stones are actually a picture of what we use as we fight our giants. Uh, the first stone is the Bible. The second stone is the church. The third stone is the home. The fourth stone, and all these other stones and what these stones mean, again, that's just a bunch of hodgepodge. And again, you might have something to back that up, but it's not the Bible, that's for sure. And so we have to be careful with that. And again, eisegesis is you are fighting a battle against a giant and you just need to go out there and say in the name of, of God, I defy you and fight the giants that you have. Again, that's eisegesis because the hero of the Bible is not you. It's always Jesus, always. And here's the story. If you really wanna read into that story, Jesus is David fighting our Goliath for us, and we're the, the Israelites that are standing on the side crying because we're so scared. If you want to really read into that story. So we got to be careful as we interpret the Bible. And one of the most misinterpreted, misapplied passages in all of the New Testament would probably be Romans 8, 28. So that's why I want to give you those examples before we jump into this this morning. And now we're going to exegete the text together. Let's take a look. First of all, Romans chapter eight, verse number 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. First of all, we see that all things work together. Now again, this sounds really simple as you begin to dig into it. And it's like, well, do we really need to talk about this? But I think that we do because all things don't work to get work well by themselves. They work together. And again, when we begin to look into the text and the word choices that we're using, that phrase work together is the Greek word, and the Paul had originally wrote this letter to the church at Rome in Greek. The word that he used there is the word synergeo, where we get our word synergy, meaning the sum of the, uh, the work is greater than the individual parts by themselves. And so by saying that these things work together for good, Paul's saying that all that happens in your life is actually a synergy, connectedness, all of it together, that looking at something by itself is not gonna, you're not gonna say, well, that's a good thing. But when it all gets put together in synergy, we see that it actually does bring about good for us. You see, individual parts of your life might not be good by themselves. Hey, it looks like I lost my job. That's a bummer. I don't think anybody would say that looks like a really good thing. But it could be part of something that God's working together for your overall good together with other things in your life. Again, I think if we look at uh, eating, I, I really enjoy eating. Uh, you don't get the size that I am by having kale salads and uh, veggie delights and things like that. You just don't. I eat a lot. I eat a lot. And so when I think of things that I like to eat, I like, I like cookies, I like cake and stuff like that. But those things individually the ingredients aren't good by themselves nobody wants to sit down and eat three cups of flour can you imagine how disgusting that would be nobody wants to eat raw eggs unless you're a boxer and you want to be like rocky uh you don't crack eggs and just eat them most people my wife's probably the exception wouldn't sit down and eat butter by itself my wife would probably do that um but um by itself you're like mm, not good 
But when you put all those things together and you put a copious amount of everybody's favorite sugar that we could sit down and eat by the spoonful, right? It brings about something good. Individually by itself, not so great, but all together, working together, it brings about something that is very good. You see, some things by themselves may not be good, but they work together for good. And so what's taking place in your life right now might not feel good, but it's part of the overall good for you. And I think anybody that looks at this text would realize that's what it's saying. All things are working together, not individually. But it goes on to say that all things work together for good. And unfortunately, this is where many people stop in their uh, understanding of this particular Bible verse. All things work together for good, so this is all just gonna work out in your favor. So the title of today's message is, do, do everything, does everything really always work together for good? And the answer to that is no, it doesn't. We know that all things work together for good. Yes. For who, though? It's important to understand that this promise that is given, and it is a promise from God that all things will work together for good, it's a conditional promise, meaning there are certain qualifications and prerequisites that you must meet before this promise will be good in your life. It's a conditional promise. It is not uh, generally applicable. It doesn't apply to every single person. It is conditional, and you need to make sure that you meet the conditions, first of all. Again, Romans 8, 28, we're just gonna take a look at the verse, and we know that all things work together for good. To who? To them that love God. So the first condition here is that you need to love God. I think you'd say, well, of course I love God. I'm in church on a Sunday morning. You know, I could have been anywhere this morning. I could have went surfing this morning. I could have slept in this morning. I could be playing golf this morning. But I'm in church, so that means I love God automatically, right? Not necessarily. Love is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. Love for God is always linked to obedience to God's word. Every single time. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll do what I said. Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? He says, of course, I love you, Lord. He says, great, feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you just got through asking me. Of course, I love you. Great, feed my sheep. He asked him a third time, Peter, do you love me? The Bible says that Peter was grieved in his heart that God asked him, Jesus had asked him, who is God? Three times, do you love me? He says, yes, of course I do. He says, great, feed my sheep. Then just do what I said, Peter. Do what I've asked you to do, and that will prove your love for me. He didn't want Peter's words. He wanted Peter's heart. And so if you love God, you'll be living in obedience to God's word. This young man at our uh, singles department in California, the church that we were at, we had the opportunity to work with single adults. Man, I loved it. And I was talking with this uh, young man and, and uh, the conversation we had, if I live to be 150, I'll never forget the conversation that we had. We were sitting down at a claim jumper restaurant across the table from each other and he's telling me how much he loves God. And then he began to talk about the, the vile, filthy, nasty sin that he was involved with. And I said, hey, I'm gonna stop you right there. You said you love God, but why are you living this way? And I said, everything that you just got to telling me, being sexual with your, your girlfriend, that's a sin, the filthy, crude talk that you use is not the type of talk that Christians use. The, the things that you're involved with as far as drunkenness and, and drug use and things like that, those things are not of God. <laughs> and the thing that he said absolutely blew my mind. He said this, oh, I love God. I just don't want to obey him. <laughs> could, could you say that one more time? Because it sounded like you said, you love God, you just don't want to obey him. Yeah, that's what I said. You don't love God then, man. No, 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 I do, I really do. Because like when, when songs come on the radio, man, I feel something right here. Man, I really do. And sometimes when I go to church uh, and I hear stuff, man, it gets me right here. No, 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 it's not a feeling that we have our love for God. Our love for God is evidenced by the way that we live our lives. God doesn't want you to say that you love him. He wants you to live like you love him. That's the idea. Loving God is finding our treasure in God not finding our treasure in the things of this world. That if I had the Lord and the promises from his word, that would be enough for me. He is everything to me. My treasure is in him. He's everything that my heart desires. 
know, I found that the most miserable Christian is the one who doesn't love God. They just want his stuff. And here's the thing. I'm going to confess to you this morning because I want to be real with you. I've been there before. I don't really love God. I want to do what he says. I just want him to do what I want him to do. I want him to meet my needs. I want him to come through for me. I want him to get me out of the financial jam that I got myself in. I want him to get me promoted at work. I want him to give me this job that I'm looking for. I want him to make that place that I'm looking to move into wide open for me. But as far as like worshiping him and loving him and obeying him, I'm not really all that interested in him. I want him for my kids. I want my kids to grow up in church. I want them to, to be able to make right decisions. I want my kids to know the Bible and things like that. But as far as me, no, I think I'm good with that. You don't love God. You just want stuff from him. That's a dangerous place to be, and that's a miserable way to live your life as a Christian. Here's the thing. If God never gave me anything, I still want to love him and worship him. I don't worship him because he's good to me or because he meets my needs or because he's given me what I want. I worship him because he's worthy of my worship. He's worthy of my honor. And so we have to make sure that we love God before we can apply this promise to us. If you don't love God by living in obedience to him, by treasuring him, by living the life that a Christian should live, this promise here doesn't necessarily apply to you. And you have forfeited the right to claim the promise that all things work together for good for you. Second condition that we have here, again, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Second condition to them who are the called according to his purpose. We know from everything else that we find in scripture that those that are called are those that are saved. Again, we find even uh, verse number uh, 29, for whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of the son. Uh, No, verse 30 is what I'm looking for. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he called whom he called, he also justified. That word justified means he declared them righteous before God. He saved them. And whom he justified, he also glorified. So the called, again, because we're using scripture to interpret scripture, the called tells us that those are the people that are saved. And so, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, this promise doesn't apply to you. If you have a coworker at at work that's not a Christian that just lost their, their dog, you can't claim this promise for them. You're giving them false hope if you do that. I've known people take unsaved people and say to them, well, the Bible says all things are working together for good, so God's gonna use this for your good. Hey, you just gave somebody false hope. That's not what the Bible says. You have to love God and you have to be saved. The question is, are you saved? The most important question you will ever answer on this earth is, are you saved? Because you are born not part of God's family, you are born outside of God's family. You are an enemy of God, the Bible says in Romans chapter five, again, because we use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Romans chapter three, again, in Paul's masterpiece of doctrine that he's written, Romans chapter three, verse number 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I've sinned against God, you've sinned against God, we're all in the same boat together as sinners. That's what we are. And the Bible tells us the consequences of our sin in Romans chapter six, verse number 23, for the wages of sin is death. And this is not just a physical death. It's God's wrath and condemnation poured out on unbelievers for all of eternity in a place called hell. If you die without Jesus, I want to make this crystal clear for everyone here today. If you die without Jesus Christ as your Savior, your penalty is death in hell for all of eternity. And there's no second chances there. We can't pray you out of there. We can't give enough money to get you out of there. Nobody could get baptized to try to wash away your sins or anything like that. Those things are non-biblical ideas. If you die without Jesus, there is no hope for you at all. I want to be clear on that. But before you die, there is all of the hope in the entire world for you in the person of Jesus Christ. Because the second part of Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross to pay for your sin and to pay for mine so that we don't have to die and go to hell, but we can be saved by Jesus. Romans chapter five, verse number eight, but God commendeth or demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You were supposed to die, Jesus died for you. You were supposed to endure the wrath of God, Jesus died for you. You were supposed to pay for your sins, Jesus paid for you. 
And the only thing God requires from you, two things, faith, believing that he really can and did pay the price for you, and repentance, saying, I messed up and I need forgiveness and I'm turning from my sin and turning to Jesus. And if you would be willing to do that today, you can be saved today and this promise immediately and all the other promises of the Bible immediately become yours. It's one of the greatest gifts God's ever given to mankind. Salvation, but not just that, all the promises of his word. But if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, first of all, this promise doesn't apply to you and God is not obligated to work everything out for your good. But secondly, after you finish this life, if if you're going through a rough spot now, you've only begun to see what hell would be like because that's for all of eternity and it's worse than anyone can imagine. But there's hope in Jesus Christ. Do you know for sure that you're saved? Friend, don't leave here today without knowing for sure that you're saved. Again, it's not how to join our church or how to become a Baptist or how to believe what this church believes. It's just straight from the Bible. Again, we are Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church just telling people what the Bible says. So, if you are, if you love God, you're living in obedience to his word, you're following after him, he is your treasure, he is your delight. You are saved, you are the called according to his purpose. Then this promise is yours. All things in your life will work together for good. Guaranteed promise applied to your account. Take it and use it. But Herein comes another problem. What does it mean that he works things together for good? What does it mean, the good? Well, that's the great question. What is the good that God intends in this case? Again, this is where it's important that we look at it from an exegetical standpoint instead of eisegetical. And again, I'm using big words here on purpose because I want you to become a Bible scholar. We don't want to read into the text what we want it to be. We want to pull out of the text what it actually says. Now, if we were going to look at this from an eisegesis standpoint or reading into the text, notice I put in parentheses there for you, poor biblical interpretation. If you're reading into it, then this means that God wants to bring you to a better place. Hey, you lost your job. God's got a better job prepared for you. Romans 8, 28, God works everything together for good. Oh, okay. Your finances are down, no problem, because God works all things together for good, so your finances are going to get better. Oh, you got kicked out of your house? No sweat. God's got a better house prepared for you. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. And we look at it from every bad situation is God just turning into a better situation for us from a quality of life standpoint. And that's not what the Bible says. The good is not that God's gonna bring me to a better place. It's not that he's gonna make my situation better. It's not, this is hard to say, but I'm gonna say it. It's not that God's gonna end your suffering. Your suffering might continue until the day you see Jesus. I know people that are in deep physical pain and there will never be an end to their suffering until the day that they get to see Jesus. So this verse does not mean that all of your suffering goes away. This verse does not mean that God's gonna bring you out of a valley and into a mountaintop. Oh, just hang in there. God works everything together for good. So sooner or later, you're gonna be standing on that mountaintop again. You might not. And that's hard to tell people if they don't understand what the Bible says. I'm telling you, you look at this and you go, well, that's a bummer because this kind of lets all the air out of my balloon as far as what I thought Romans 8, 28 said. Oh, no, no, I'm gonna show you what, what is available for you that's so much better than these things. It also doesn't mean that God's gonna give you the end result that you want. Oh, man, I, I didn't get that job I was looking for. Oh, man, God's gonna give you a better job or one that you love better. Maybe he won't. Maybe you'll go six months without a job. Maybe when you get kicked out of your apartment, you're gonna be living on somebody's couch for a while. Maybe things aren't gonna look up for you. Maybe you're gonna take a pay cut instead of getting a pay increase. Does that mean that God didn't work everything together for good for you? No, it just means we need to understand the Bible. So if we actually exegete the text and allow scripture to speak for scripture, again, proper biblical interpretation, What's the good that God wants to bring? First of all, God wants to bring us to the end of ourselves. You look at that and you go, well, that doesn't sound very good. God wants you to know that he is all that you have and he is at the same time all that you need. Everything. Let's take a look at verse number 26 in our passage. Again, context is key. We just need to read the verses around it and see what they said. 
Likewise, the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit. Again, pause for a second. The Holy Spirit's only available to those that are Christians, only available to those that are saved. So again, if someone is not a Christian and they're not saved and they do not believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, this does not apply to them. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, our shortcomings, our failures, our hurts, our trials. For we know not what we should pray as we ought. You ever sat down and pray and you don't even know what to say? You're just like, oh. Um, God, I'm in a mess. Um, I don't even know how I would work this out if I had had my choice. Have you ever been in a situation that's so bad you don't even know what the what fixing it looks like? Well, if you could have anything you want out of the situation, what would it be? It's like, honestly, I have no idea. That's how bad it is. That's what the Bible says. It says, when you come to that place, know this, the Holy Spirit is there for you, and the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That when you don't even know what to say, the Holy Spirit is praying for you and letting God know exactly what you need and exactly what you're going through. Again, because we let Scripture speak for Scripture, that's what it means. Now, again, if someone wants to read into the text, they would say, well, the Spirit prays for me in words that I don't know. And so I'm going to begin to pray in the Spirit, and words are going to come out that are not my words and not my language. And sometimes referred to as ecstatic babblings of people saying things again and again and again that don't make a lot of sense. And you look at that and you go, well, what is that? Well, that's what that verse means because we're reading into it. That's talking about speaking in tongues. Uh, I don't think so because when we look at Scripture with Scripture, that's not how tongues work. So again, we're just gonna let Scripture speak for Scripture. And when you come to the end of yourself, God says, great. Now I can begin to do my work and I'm gonna show you how strong I am. That's what God wants to do for you. If you're, and let me just pause for just a second and say when you're going through trials and difficulties, the Psalms is a great place to, to just park for a while and read through. You know, you should be in your Bible. You don't know what to read. Some people sit down, they start in Genesis 1-1 and you start reading through the Bible and you find out that this doesn't really help me in what I'm going through. That part is there for a reason, but when you're going through trials, the Psalms will is water to your soul. David in Psalm 42 said this, as my heart, as the heart Panteth, or the deer panteth for the water brooks. So my panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my meat day and night. And while they continually say unto me, where is thy God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me. For had I gone with the multitude, I went with them in the house of God with a voice of praise with a multitude who kept the holy day. Why art thou cast down, O soul? Why art thou disquiet in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. He says, man, my soul is just melted inside of me. I cry all the time, and I don't know why. He says, but my soul said to me, hope in God, trust in God, because he's faithful. And so David here, who is a king over all of Israel, one of the most respected men and most revered rulers in all of human history, came to a point where he realized, I've got nowhere to turn but God. All of my wealth, all these people around me, all the power that I have, I've got nothing to turn to except for God. Next, the good that God brings from your suffering is to help us to trust in God's plans and God's purposes. Well, God works all things together for good to them that love him and to them who are the called according to his purpose. So God has a purpose, God has a plan through this, and I'm just gonna trust him. I don't understand why this is happening to me. I wouldn't wish my situation on my worst enemy, but I know that God's in charge. And I take rest in that. I take hope in that. I believe that God is good. I believe that he's working the situation out for a better in my life, for good for me. Because we often paraphrase Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for good, dot, dot, dot. We miss out on really what that good looks like. Take a look at verse number 29 in our text this morning. For whom he did foreknow, that means before God ever created this world, he knew you. And he also had a plan for those that would be saved, predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his son. You know what God wants to do through your trial? He wants to make you like Jesus. That's his plan. To mold you 
to shape you, to conform you. The word conform means to press into the mold of Jesus. God's just trying to make you be like Jesus. Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus walked in the spirit. Jesus loved. Jesus submitted to God. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus knelt and said, Lord, if there's another way to, to do this, I'm willing to take it. But if not, I'm willing to go. He went to the cross for us because he trusted in God. He trusted God's plan. And God wants to make you like Jesus. The problem is when you and I go through trials, we go the opposite direction. We throw off our faith. We get angry with God and we begin to be the opposite of who Jesus is. You're, you're wasting your trial. You're ruining the purpose that God has for this. Next, the good that God wants from this is he wants to make Jesus preeminent amongst his people. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. Now stop for just a second. Remember I told you that you weren't born into God's family, you were born outside of God's family? Now the day that you got saved, the day that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you were adopted into God's family. You with me so far? So we're adopted into God's family with God as our father. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ is our joint heir together, which means he's our brother. Jesus is our brother because of what he's done for us. God is our father. Christ is our brother. Now, Jesus is the only begotten son of God, which means he's the only natural child of God. The rest of God's kids are all adopted, which is those that are Christians, those that have been saved. You're an adopted child of God and you're not a joint heir together with Jesus. Christ is your brother. Hang on for a second. We're getting there. Get this. We're conformed to the image of Christ so that Jesus Christ could be the firstborn among many brethren. You know what that means? This is awesome. In the family of God, Jesus is the big brother that we all look up to. And we just want to be like him. He's the firstborn among many brethren. So your trial that you're going through, you know what you need to be doing? Looking to your big brother for help. Hey, could you give me a hand with this? Could you take care of this situation for me? Could you help me to follow your example? I want to follow in your footsteps. I want to be just like you, big brother. In this case here, the Bible says that it allows us all to focus on Jesus and make him preeminent. Hey, at the end of the day, I don't want you asking yourself the question, well, what would pastor do in this situation? I want to ask you, what would Jesus do in this situation? And hopefully pastor would just do whatever Jesus would do. But the idea is the person that we're looking for, the person that we give preeminence to, the person that we give deference to is always, 100% of the time, Jesus. And your trial, your suffering is your opportunity to put Jesus first and to look to him like you've never looked to him before in your entire life and go, I need help. And it gives you the opportunity to make Jesus' name great. And when everybody else that knows you're going through a trial, hey, I heard you're going through a tough spot. Hey, no sweat, Jesus is with me. He's carried me this far. He's gonna carry me the rest of the way. I can trust in him. He's faithful. Hey, worse things happen to Jesus than what's happening to me. And he went through it. I know I can too. It allows us to make Jesus preeminent. Next, it causes our faith to rest in God. There's a song we sing sometimes, my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever living one, his wounds for me doth plead. I need no further argument. I need no other plea. Tis enough to know that Jesus died and that he died for me. What an amazing, amazing truth that our faith is rested in the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. Take a look at verse number 31. What shall we say then to these things if God be for us? Who can be against us? (laughs) Hey, if God's on our side, nothing can stop what God wants to do. Now, careful, careful with your interpretation of verse 31. Well, I want that job. And if God's for me, who can be against me? Careful. Oh, that place we're looking at buying, that's ours. I'm gonna claim it in the name of Jesus because if God be for us, who can be against us? Careful, that's not what he's talking about. Oh, I got this sickness. I got this 
this, this sickness that won't leave me. And I'm just gonna claim in the name of Jesus that God's stronger than this sickness. God is stronger than your sickness, but it doesn't mean he's gonna cure it. Careful with that application. Here's what it means. It means that God's plans are greater than man's plans and God's plans will always succeed. Always. It doesn't mean your plans will always succeed. Because there comes a time in life where our plans differ from God's plans. And one's gotta win. Let me just tell you, the Bible tells us God's plans always win. So if God be for us, who can be against us? Again, Psalm 84, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them which walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Psalm 84, 11, you should in your, find that in your Bible. You should circle, star, underline that. 11 and 12. That's another promise from God. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. You do the right thing, you follow after God, he's not gonna withhold good things from you. Well, I wanted this and I didn't get it. <laughs> then it wasn't a good thing for you. Well, I had this plan and it didn't work out and that means that this verse isn't right. No, that means that that wasn't God's good plan for you. <laughs> Does it ever happen to you? There's something that you wanted really, 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 really badly and you got it and you realize it wasn't all it was cracked up to be? I remember when I was a kid, I had asked my parents for an electric guitar because I thought to myself, you know, I, I grew up watching MTV and listening to terrible music, and so I thought to myself, I'm gonna join a band in middle school and I'm gonna learn to shred and, and girls love guys that can play guitar and stuff like that. Um, if you know how the story works out, I never actually played the guitar. I joined marching band and played the tuba instead. And for whatever reason, girls don't love guys that play the tuba. I don't, I don't get it. I think it's a very... Uh, attractive instrument, but that's just me. Uh, but I had the, this idea in my mind that I was going to get an electric guitar, and I was, I, I, I picked out the guitar that I wanted in the amplifier, and it had a distortion button on it, so I didn't have to buy a pedal. I just pushed the button and just make terrible noise that nobody wanted to hear. My parents also bought me a pair of headphones, but I wanted it so badly, and I got it. And my parents uh, took me to the music store, and I bought uh, one of those VHS tapes back in the day, how to play electric guitar. Man, this is gonna be awesome. And I, I learned to play like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and it was awful. And I thought to myself, no, I wanna play like Van Halen, I wanna play like ACDC, I wanna play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Too bad. And so I quit. And I never actually played it. I thought, that is the dumbest thing in the world. My parents spent hundreds of dollars on an electric guitar that ended up giving away to a friend because it wasn't what I thought it would be. And oftentimes, you and I want things in life so badly. And when we don't get them, we get mad at God over it. Hey, know this. If you're walking uprightly and you're doing the right thing, you're following after God, whatever you missed out on is God protecting you from what you were going towards and he's giving you the good thing that you really need. And I know that's hard to wrap your mind around, but it's Bible truth. And again, notice Psalm 84, 11, no good thing will he withhold condition from them that walk uprightly. Again, conditional promise. You're gonna live according to what the Bible says and God's gonna work things out in your favor. Final thing. The good that God brings from your trial and your suffering is to show God's love through his provision. Verse number 32 is a beautiful, beautiful verse. And he that spared not his own son, God, your father, who adopted you, not because you're good or because he thought it would be nice to have another kid that didn't listen to him. God adopted you despite your sinful condition. And because of his unconditional love for you, God adopted you into his family. And you know what it cost him? It cost him his own only begotten son to save you. And he that spared, verse 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him, Jesus, also freely give us, what are those last two words there in that verse? All things. Hey, wait a minute, I've seen that phrase, all things before. Oh yeah, all things work together for good to them that love God and who are the call according to his purpose. And in the end, God's gonna give you exactly what you need because he's given you his own son, how shall he not also give you all 
things. What's he going to withhold from you? What? A raise at work? He's going to withhold that from you? He's already given you a son. What's $100 a month to God? Oh, God's going to withhold something good from you? He's already given you a son. It's the greatest gift he could give. Of course he's going to give you everything that you need that works in accordance with his good plan for you. The problem is when we get messed up, we get our wires crossed, is this. We think that God's good plans always have to match our average to crummy plans. And when the two don't match, we get mad at God about it. No, no, no. no this God's sovereign. He's faithful. He knows what's going on. Trust him. So your trial that you're going through, the good that you're going to get out of that is so much better than a nicer place to live or an extra raise at work or something like that. No, no, God wants to do something in you and through you. God wants to bring you to an end of yourself. He wants you to trust in his plans and promises. He wants to make you like Jesus. He wants to be preeminent in your heart and amongst all of his people. He wants to cause your faith to rest in God. He wants to show you how much he loves you by providing for you the things that you really need. And that, my friend, is the good that's coming out of your trial. That is what the Bible says. Notice it doesn't say he's going to give you a raise, he's going to give you a better job, he's going to give you better neighbors, or he's going to improve your quality of living, he's going to shorten your commute, he's going to give you a nicer car. None of those things. Because all of those things don't last. God's going to give you spiritual fruit. He's going to give you peace inside. He's going to give you joy to be able to live in difficult circumstances despite your circumstances because that's the good that he wants to bring from you. So the next time you see somebody going through a trial, be careful just spouting scripture without thinking about what it says. I always encourage people, hey, if you're going through a trial, here's the best thing in the world you can do. Follow after God like you've never followed after him before. Put your trust in him, put your faith in him, put your delight in him. And if you do that, he's promised, if you're a child of his and you love him, he's promised to work this out for your good. I don't know how that's gonna happen. It doesn't mean you're gonna get what you want out of this, but it means it's gonna work for your good. (laughs) Sometimes the good that God wants to do in us can't be accomplished but through suffering. told a story several weeks ago about my grandmother who was actually a step-grandmother who was my mom's stepmom when she was 16. She married an alcoholic, abusive man. They weren't married for long. She divorced him and left. But the one thing that she did was she took my mom to church where my mom got saved, where my mom met my dad, where they made a decision as a couple of teenagers that if God ever gave them kids, they put them in church. Fast forward 50 years later, here you are, here I am in church because my parents made a decision based off of a decision that was made by my mom's stepmom. So she was in an alcoholic, abusive marriage relationship. What's the good that was gonna come out of that? Hey, you couldn't see it in the moment. You really couldn't. She died in her mid-40s of lung cancer. What's the good that came from that? You couldn't see it in the moment. You really couldn't. But when you step back and look at your life over a period of decades, not a matter of hours, days and weeks, you can begin to see, oh, wait a minute, God's doing something here. Because of a decision that she made back in the 60s, you and I are here in this place this morning. That's the good that came out of that situation. Not a situation you wish on anybody. But we know that God works all things together for good to them that love him and who are the called according to his purpose to help us to be like Jesus, to find our treasure, to find our hope in him. So to those that are going through a tough time today, I want to challenge you. Trust in God. He's faithful. He's working things for your good if you promise to follow after him and do things his way. He's going to work it in your favor. And it might not be today. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be the end of the week. It might be weeks. It might be months. Hey, it could be years before you see any relief. You might never see relief but God has always promised to be enough for us. He's faithful. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you do not know for sure that you're saved, please don't leave here without knowing for sure that God is your father and Christ is your brother. Again, it's not a class you have to go through. You just need to know, I've sinned against God and I need to make things right. 
I need to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior to save me from my sin. If you can do that, you can be saved today. And then all the promises of God's word. He won't withhold any good thing from you if you're walking uprightly. This promise here that God will work everything together for your good, that's a promise you can claim as a child of his along with thousands of other promises from the Bible that are yours if you're his child. For those that are his children here today, I wanna challenge you with this. Trust in God, trust in God, trust in God. You say, well, Pastor, I'm not really going through a trial right now. Good. Get ready. Trust in God. Have your faith strong so that when the trial comes, you can walk through it with grace. And for those of you in the middle of the trial, don't quit, don't give up. You've got a church family here that loves you and is praying for you. If there's anything I can do to help you, I wanna help you. What you can't do is you can't give up through this because God is working it together for your good. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.